0: What we've got here is failure to communicate. Freedom. Freedom? Well, sign away my freedom. Why, this is ridiculous. Don't be corny, brother. (laughs) Sure, our system of free enterprise isn't perfect. But before we throw it away for some imported double talk, Let's turn the clock back a few years to see what it's done for us. With your host, Mike Paul. Hey guys, welcome back to Paul's to the Wall. I am your host, Mike Paul. Today's episode's going to be a little bit different than the shows we have recorded uh, in the past. Um, I recently did something that I always said I was trying to avoid, um, and that's create a Twitter account for for the podcast. As much as I'd love to avoid that, um, it is a necessary evil in the uh, podcast world in today's day and age. If we're looking to uh, help grow the show, Um, also we will be doing some advertising on some larger platforms uh, going into January, and I needed to have some social media for viewers and or listeners to come over and follow the show. So, anyways. After being on Twitter for two days now, I can confirm that it is (laughs) every bit of the cesspool that I was forewarned about. Um, There are some just horrible, nasty people on there. Um, But, you know, there are some people that um, make you think and uh, are kind of fun to engage with. And this episode, I have decided to kind of break down and... um, react to an article that was written by um, a socialist uh, that's, that's pretty well known. Uh, he's built a pretty big name for himself in recent years, named Ben Burgess. Um, you know, before we get into this, I just want to say that uh, this is not a personal attack on Ben. Um, I've known of him for a couple years. I've heard him debate Dave Smith. I've heard him debate Gene Epstein. Um, ben is always very respectful towards people of contrary beliefs, um, and also, I commend him for you know, debating his beliefs and, and trying to back him up. A lot of people don't do that on, on any side of any argument. Um, they like to stay in their echo chamber and have their crowd tell them why they're right. Um, Ben's debated, like I said, Dave Smith, Gene Epstein, Walter Block, um, I think even Gavin McInnes. So uh, he has my respect for that, and that's why I, I mean this um, episode to be done respectfully and professionally towards an article he wrote that I just vehemently disagree with. Um, So the article itself is called Abolish Inherited Wealth by Ben Burgess. So basically, if you're wealthy to a certain point, uh, we'll get into in the article, Ben saying it should be essentially illegal to give to your children, which um, as you see, I do not see eye to eye with him on. So here we go. Let's get into the article. Allowing wealth to accumulate from one generation to another is a recipe for unacceptable inequalities. We should abolish inherited wealth. Okay. Um, once again, abolish uh, inherited wealth to avoid unacceptable inequalities. These are very vague and arbitrary lines. What, what's an unacceptable inequality? Like, I need a dollar amount, and I need a a logic that's consistent why that is too much for one person to have. That's not something I can just hear and go, yeah, that sells on an emotional level. Uh, I like equality, and that's unacceptable that I have to work harder than some silver spoon rich kid. Um, I mean, that's just not really a compelling argument. I I don't – right out of the gate. But here, let's let him expand and uh, see if he can elaborate. In Charles Bukowski's novel Hollywood, the protagonist Hank Chinasky? Sorry, I I'm not familiar with this novel. Uh, Chanasky reflects on the importance of home ownership to his father. Quote, Look, Henry Chanasky Sr. once told him, I'll pay for one house, and when I die, you'll get that house, and then in your lifetime, you'll pay for a house. When you die, you'll leave those houses to your son. That'll make two houses, then your son will. Dot, dot, dot. Hank thinks this is ridiculous. What if, after accumulating 10 houses in 10 generations, the 11th Chanasky gambles all them away? better to live for the moment. Okay. Well, what if the 11's Chinasky lights them all on fire? What if he turns them all into Airbnbs and creates a, a very successful business? Uh, what if he sells them all and donates the money to charity? Uh, any one of these hypotheticals that you want to imagine, um, they're not of any concern of mine or Ben's or the state's. Uh, that's the property of Mr. Chinaski. Um, I commend him for somehow pulling off 11 generations of one child not squandering the wealth that's a pretty impressive. It's a very rare statistic, but if you can pull it off, um, that's, that's their right to do whatever they want with their property. Um, at no point, uh, at the fifth house or the sixth house or the second, whatever number you want to draw, do I think the state has a right to come in with a gun and say, no, you have too much. Um, we're going to take that from here and, uh, do benevolent things with this money. So uh, it seems like this is kind of more just sold on jealousy and envy, um, rather than being based in any sort of principle or, um, logic. So anyone who cares about creating a society without landlords should have the opposite concern. What if the Chinaski family's holdings do accumulate as planned? In ways much more serious than petty real estate fortunes, inherited wealth has a massive effect in fueling economic inequality. And the problem is getting worse. As the most recent data I could find, the amount of inherited wealth going from one generation to another each year is up 119% from 1989. Even when inflation is taken into account, according to United Income founder Matt Fellows, a historically unprecedented amount of money is going to be flowing from one generation into the next in the next few decades. Okay. I don't understand why it's a bad thing that our country is getting wealthier. Uh, would you rather go the other direction? Um, would you want your kids to be poorer than you? Uh, that's I think that's human nature is you always want your kids to do better than you. So I, I really, once again, don't see a compelling argument. But if we want to point out... Um, the, a data mark of 1989. So you're saying the amount of inherited wealth each year has gone up 119% since 1989. Okay, well, who do you want this wealth to go to, Ben? You want it to go to the state, a government structure. Okay, well, let's see what the state's done since 1989. Um, da, 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 da. Let's see here. So we have, since 1989, government spending. In 1989... 1.9 trillion was our uh, spending in the year 2020. 9.8 trillion. Okay, let's take COVID out of the equation. I know that that skewed the numbers, and um, you know that could be pointed to as a reason why it increased so radically. Let's go to 2019. 7.69 trillion. So, in the course of my lifetime, I, I was born in '90. Uh, yeah, we were, we were spending 1.9 trillion. Uh, now we're almost four times that, over four times that if we count 2020. Um, whereas our revenue. Let's see, government revenue in 1989, 1.93 trillion. Government revenue in 2020, 7.09 trillion. Let's check out debt. 1989, 3.2 trillion. 2020, almost. We're approaching 27 trillion. Uh we'll cross the here pretty shortly uh, in 21. Um, let's adjust that for inflation. So $3.2 in 89 is approximately $6.7 trillion adjusted for inflation. So once again, what, what, uh, four times we've uh, racked up our debt. So now if this were, if you were a bank and you had a customer come in with this kind of track record of spending and debt to income ratio, would you lend them a penny? Um, if you had a CFO, if you managed a big company and your CFO spent like this, um, would you fire them? Or would you give them a bigger budget next quarter? Um, This is the problem of public sector versus private. When private sector spends inefficiently, they go out of business. When public sector spends inefficiently, they get a larger budget. So incentives are not aligned at all. And, And somehow Ben thinks if we confiscate more wealth from wealthy private sector people when they die, these people with these spending habits... We'll start doing benevolent things like paying off college debt and uh, getting rid of landlords, I suppose. Um, not, not really sure on the, the landlord boogeyman thing. Uh, of all the things to be upset about, I don't understand why landlord is the like the nasty profession where it's just immoral. Um, It's renting out property. I, I don't understand. Should we abolish uh, car rental places? So should that be monopolized by the government? If you fly somewhere and you go to an airport, should... Hertz and uh, all these rent-a-car places, Enterprise, should they all be owned by the state? Um, Because they're renting property. It's not any different than renting a living space. Um, If I want to rent a backhoe or a a skid steer or a post hole digger, if I go to my my, uh, local rental place, can that be privately owned? I'm just renting property. Or or is it only living space? I don't understand why landlords renting out living space is so evil. Uh, Are we in fear that we're overpopulated and we're going to run out of property? Because it seems like quite an irrational fear. Um, I don't, I, once again, landlord gets referenced by socialists all the time as this just, like I said, boogeyman uh, in the economy. And I, I, I don't understand. If, if I want to be a landlord, like maybe that profession really interests me as a capitalist. Uh, maybe I get really interested in real estate and say, wow, I want to do that when I grow up. I want to play Monopoly on a large scale. I want to buy this property, fix it up, uh, rent it out, use that profit, buy another one, and then, yeah, have 10 properties. Um, landlord's I mean, I've I've rented before, uh, and you know my landlord was not Scrooge McDuck. He wasn't taking baths in gold coins. He, he was a working class guy who was he was actually upside down in the house that I was renting from him. Um, he was trying to rent it to recoup some of the money he was bleeding out of it. So, I, this whole thing that landlords just paint with a broad stroke that they're all just these evil rich guys who are lazy and make money off of you your existence. Um, it's just i i i i i need someone to explain it to me better why this is so evil um i would love to have rental properties um i'd love to do it you know airbnb's capitalism play monopoly in my town uh there's nothing wrong with it if the more people that do it the more competition there is the lower uh cost of living goes down and um yeah everybody wins as free market capitalism always promotes so moving on let's see The right wing has done a good job of demonizing even modest efforts to tax these transfers, branding the tax on large estates as a ghoulish death tax. That's obviously ridiculous, but how could a better society handle the inheritance issue? Socialists want to take the means of production, distribution, and exchange away from their current owners and bring them under social ownership. Some blueprints for what such society might look like involve state ownership of nearly everything. Or even eliminate money as a medium of exchange. Hmm. So, if I'm manufacturing furniture out of my house, making tables, and my neighbor has a garden, and uh, he wants a table, and I want a bunch of produce, but my table's worth more than his produce, what do we use to uh, fill that void there? How do we? We need some kind of currency, Ben. What? What I mean? Can I have gold? Can we use silver? Can we? Can we go back? Can I use Bitcoin? Um, can we operate in a black market or do I have to just trade him for uh, X amount of tomatoes that my table's worth? But it's way more than I need. So now my tomatoes are going to spoil. Now we're wasting food. So, okay. But you're not arguing that point. So I'll I'll leave that there. Uh, Ben does go on to say, I've argued that a more realistic vision of the kind of socialism we kind of bring out without waiting for massive technological progress to solve the logistical problems raised by Trying to plan an entire economy would involve nationalizing the commanding heights, taking many important public goods out of the market entirely and bringing them the remaining private sector under worker ownership. These individual elements have all been successfully beta tested in the real world, but the combination would mean that the first society since the agricultural revolution that wouldn't be divided into a powerful ruling class and a subservient labor force. Once again, that's an assertion. That's not how it works. Um, If Henry Chinasky Sr. had been born into such a society, whatever income he built up couldn't have been derived from exploitation. Once again, an assertion. It's exploitation. If you're you're a business owner and you have employees, it's exploitation. It's not the fact – no one's there voluntarily. You put a gun to every one of these people's heads. You keep them in slave quarters. Um, They want to escape, but you just whip them and beat them and keep them coming back. Um it's not that you've offered them the best deal that their skills and um, life experience have allowed them to do um, and if they're better than you at the job that you're giving them they should be able to start their own business and put you out um, so this is that assertion drives me crazy that workers are exploited. Um, I'm employed Maybe I just hang out with a uh, bunch of people that are outliers in society but we we all are employed by employers that were we're there voluntarily um i have an agreed upon rate of what my time labor and skills are worth and i agree to sell those to my employer all my friends do that too uh none of us are kept there at gunpoint um i'm free to do whatever i want i'm i'm happy where i'm at and i know a lot of people that are so this assertion that everybody um is a slave to make a business owner rich it, it once again it's just an assertion if you feel that way um I'm sorry. I would look into getting a new job, uh, developing a new skill, maybe uh, start your own business. If you can do your job better than your employer, man, put him out of business. Go for it. It's the beauty of capitalism. Go compete. Moving on. So worker export exploitation, da-da-da-da. Um, that doesn't mean every penny of it would be his to do with it as he liked. Since he would still have to pay a significant portion of it in taxes to fund the massive public sector. Boy, what a dream. But he would have a reasonable claim to spend whatever remained however he chose. Reminds me of uh, the Beatles song. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. Because Ben's the tax man. Um, Yeah, so basically you get to keep the peanuts. The large bulk of the wealth you create goes to this massive public sector. um, Which, boy, how could that go wrong? We just went over their their, uh, spending history and... Uh, tendencies. So let's make it bigger. Let's give them more money, leave uh, less power in the hands of the individual. So uh, such a society could democratically decide to outlaw individual homeownership. But I have a hard time imagining that. Thank God, Ben. Um, Outlawing individual homeownership in a democracy. So once again, 51% of the people uh, decide that you can't own your home 49% 49% do want it. Well, that's democracy, guys. You can't have a house now because 51% said you can't. And the other thing is I'm assuming in this socialist utopia, this is this is a, a, you know just an assumption. You can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben. But you're probably not going to let the news and media sources be privately owned, being that you want this massive uh, public sector. So it's safe to say that you want a state-run media. Um, so if the... Media is run by a public sector. Um, It's pretty reasonable to believe that they're going to be able to spread enough propaganda to convince 51% of the population that homeowner is evil. Probably young college kids who don't own houses and um, people that still live in their parents' basements. Very easy to get 51% to believe ownership is evil. And that's why democracy is, if you want to talk about inequality, uh, making half the country Uh, live by your standards because you won the vote by 1%. So, moving on. Most working-class people today would be horrified by that that suggestion. I'm one of those, Ben. Nor is this just uh, eccentricity of American culture. Think about Palestinian refugee families who lovingly passed down their deeds of houses that were stolen during the Nakba from parent to child to grandchild in the hopes that one day the family will be able to return home. It's just barely possible that under socialism, when the rate <clears> – <throat> sorry, when the state or tenant cooperatives or a combination of the two has universally replaced private landlords – God, there's that boogeyman – global cultural attitudes would shift so dramatically that the majority of the population would be on board with banning homeownership. But what if that doesn't happen, he says. All right. So the good news is hopefully you know they can uh, – we'll get everyone on board that property ownership is evil. Let's all live in just state-owned – Properties. What could possibly go wrong? Letting real estate accumulate—sorry, uh, letting real estate accumulate in individuals' hands—is a good way to reintroduce landlordism. God, these landlords, man! I did not know they were this much of a problem. Letting very small businesses owned by one person with no full-time employees be passed on from one generation to another could easily reintroduce full-blown capitalism. Sweet, good. So there's hope. Um, and existing capitalist democracies have shown us that the sufficiently unequal distribution of wealth will be always find some way of translating itself to an unequal distribution of political power. Um, you can take the word political out of there. Unequal distribution of power is probably more accurate. Uh, yeah, that's how it works with every single area of competition in life, um, whether it be sports, um, you, know, top, you know, the top 1% of athletes make 90% of the income. Uh, garage bands, uh, I'd say probably the top 0.01% make 99% of the income. Um, uh, women and men dating: uh, 80% of the women are attracted to 20% of the best, you know, most attractive men or most appealing men. So yeah, competition—it's always going to divide, how you say, unequally. Um, that's just the way it works, Ben. I'm sorry, we can't legislate the world fair, um, but let's keep moving. Banning all inheritance would be too draconian. Hmm. If your mom dies and she wants to leave you, her loving preserved pecking crate of vinyl Kenny Loggins records, nobody should stop you. That's so fitting. I just picture everyone sitting together in, in Ben's socialist utopia just holding hands, singing, Even though we ain't got money, I'm so in love with you, honey. And like that's it's perfect. That's a, what, a, what a perfect Kenny Loggins reference. But okay. Um and in any case, it's difficult to imagine a proposed law to do that getting very far in a democratic society. Nor should Clint Eastwood's character in Grant Torino have been prevented from leaving his beloved car to B. Vang's character. It's even reasonable that Henry Chinasky Sr. should have been able to pass it on a, pass it on a single house so that his ungrateful son could actually live there. Well, <laughs> why is the son ungrateful? Like maybe the, maybe there's a father son business. Maybe he helped his dad build the business. Um, it's just an assertion that that he's ungrateful. Listen, I know a lot of silver spoon kids that grew up to be just assholes and failures. I'm with you. I get it. I know it's a real thing. The Billy Madison's, the the Tommy boys. That's a real thing. Um, and yeah, I, I would never spoil my kids like that. But I do know several people that have grown up in very successful family businesses that the next generation has taken it and done much better with. It's rare, it's an outlier. but once again, these assertions Ben keeps making that the son's ungrateful just because he has a rich dad. You're automatically ungrateful, Silver spoon asshole. Um, it's some yeah, it's very often true, but it's not the rule. Um, we'll see what's the stat? So the, the thing that Ben is so concerned about is wealth being handed down to the next generation. Well, so let's let's take it out of terms of the Mr. Chanasky's house. He talks about the house being uh, having 11 houses by the 11th generation, which, once again, the coordination to pull it off with 11 generations and no one squandering it until that last guy gambles it away would be pretty impressive. But here's the reality. Let's say this is a business, not a house. Let's say for 11 generations we passed down a family business. Once again, that would be very, very, very statistically unlikely. But it happens. There are several that have gone on for, for hundreds of years. Um, multi-generational businesses. The structure is so successful that each generation starts their own business and keeps growing the previous generation's business alive. Well, at what point does the state come in, Ben? What's the arbitrary point where the business is too large for this next generation to inherit and keep growing? Uh, The fifth generation, the sixth. um, Once again, you're just trying to penalize success and good behavior. So, And I know I probably just lost you there because you can't have good behavior and make money because profit is evil, yada, yada, yada. Um, that's for a whole nother debate, but just for the sake of argument, um, providing goods and services of value to people who are giving you their money voluntarily, I believe is a good thing for society. Um, and that's what private sector businesses do. So at what point does the state come in and say it's too much? You have to draw a line and it's going to be arbitrary, but at what point do you view it unfair and unequal? And say, nope, that's too much. Your dad could have the 10 businesses, but you have 11 businesses. That's too much. Um, And once again, hats off to this guy who pulled off 11 generations without any fuck-ups of kids. (laughs) That's uh, very impressive. But here's the real stats. When it comes to family businesses, 60% of second-generation businesses fail. 90% of third-generation businesses fail. So the fact of going 11 generations is, uh, is very unlikely. So... This money, you know, these guys don't take this money and uh, light it on fire or bury it under a mattress. Which, if we want to get into monetary policy, would actually be a great thing because it would deflate the currency and uh, improve the buying power of your dollar. If all the billionaires could just stuff their money in their mattress, we, we would all uh, we'd have less less dollars chasing uh, the same amount of goods and services, making each each dollar value go up. But whole other debate. Um. So yeah, ninety percent of third generation businesses fail. So Ben, you're getting the the. Uh, Result you want by just leaving it to the market. Like the reason why this happens so often, th- that old saying um, first generation grows it, second generation knows it, third generation blows it. That exists for a reason because much like socialism, um, when you give it to uh, entitled third generation, they have no understanding of what it took to build the business. Very rarely do they. Sometimes they do, very rarely. 90% of the time, they don't. We have data to show this. Uh, there's lack of incentive, no appreciation of what it took to build. Uh, you know, people working without pay, taking risk, chasing a dream, um, sacrificing uh, time with their kids, uh, going on vacation, everything um, to get a business off the ground. And when they finally do get successful, you want them to die and have it all stripped away because, God forbid, they work their ass off to create a business that their kids can run. Which, once again, not saying I would do that, but it is their right. It's The business is their property. What they do with it when they die is all. 100% up to them, not you, not me, not the state, not some government thug with a gun. But anyways, I man, got off topic of the part I was most excited about, the uh, Kenny Loggins records. Okay, Ben, but what if it's not Kenny Loggins? What if it's um, one of the really rare Beatles white albums? Um, one sold at auction in 2015 for 790000 US dollars. So if I inherit that, what happens? Are you going to come confiscate my Beatles album? Or if I sell it, are you going to tax my ass off? Um, so with assets, where's your arbitrary number? And what if it's not a piece of shit, puke green 72 Ford Torino? What, is it, what if it's a 70 bus, 429 Mustang that's worth 300 grand? Um, what if it's a 62 Ferrari 250 GTO? Um, one sold at uh, an uh, auction in 2018 for $48.4 That's likely worth more than all 11 of Chanasky's houses. So this one car that maybe his dad bought new in 1962 is worth 48 mil. Okay. So, I mean, how do you grapple with that? His assets do appreciate. But let's keep moving on. Maybe you get to this. But a just society would have to take a hard line against wealth snowballing from one generation to another. An estate tax of 100% is the headline. The way to abolish inherited wealth without abolishing inherited Kenny Loggins records, cars, or personal dwellings is simple. Introduce a strict upper limit on the value of assets that can be passed down from one generation to the next. Okay, well, we're getting close because a strict upper limit is the closest word he said to arbitrary. Just a random number the state will decide is too much for one person to have. So, what is that? Can I inherit my grandma's 76 Ford LTD that's worth six grand, but I can't inherit the 35 Duesenberg that my grandpa and I restored together that's worth 20 million? So what what happens here? How do you, like you, so now not cars are not illegal to inherit but based upon value. Okay, now you're going to say if I sold the car, or sorry, if I sell the car for 20 million, well then you're going to come in and take your your uh, 95% or whatever. I, once again, you're going to give me a number, so 90%. Uh, tax rate maybe more. Well, if my grandpa's clearly not stupid if he has this much money and is holding a $20 million car and he knows he's old and he's probably going to not be on this planet much longer, what if he just puts the car in my name while he's still alive? Or what if he sells it to me for ten grand while he's still alive? Now it's my legal property and now we just evaded your whole death tax. Um, are you going to have a third party come in and make sure all assets are sold at market value? Nothing can be sold at a discount, no no gifts to family members. So now you're going to need a whole nother government uh, bureaucracy or entity, department, as I'd imagine, that would have to come in and verify that nobody's ever getting a sweetheart deal on any asset. <clears throat> Otherwise, clearly that's what you do. Just before you die, you put shit in your kids' names so you can avoid all the paperwork altogether uh, since we can't willfully hand it down to our kids without men with guns taking it from us. So – you know, just rich people are not stupid. You're incentivizing them to think outside the box. So you literally just need a whole bunch of different law enforcement departments to play this game of wealth inheritance whack-a-mole to make sure nobody is getting any sort of unfair advantage from their uh, parents, grandparents, family members, loved ones, nobody. Um, unless it's Kenny Loggins, just not the Beatles' White Album. Let's keep moving on here. Oh, what about Bitcoin, Ben? So this is kind of interesting. I wanted to ask about this because once again, this is kind of stuff that we don't think about when we're just arbitrarily taking uh, too much money from people without giving any numbers. So what about Bitcoin? Let's go back exactly five years ago today, January 1st, 2015. Bitcoin was worth $434.62 per coin. So what if my father, grandfather, whoever it may be, passed away. And five years ago today, I inherited 100 Bitcoin. That had a market value at the time of $43,462 at the price of the coin. Now, since you gave me, you didn't give me the arbitrary number of what um, the strict upper limit is on assets, um, I'm going to assume 43 grand is below it. If, please. If under 50 grand? It, it seems pretty reasonable I can keep it without being confiscated. Um, so now that we have, I have $43,000 worth of Bitcoin, but I don't do anything with it. I just keep it in my Coinbase account. Don't look at it at all. Um, this morning I opened it up and Bitcoin, as I'm reading it, is <laughs> right around $29,000 a coin. So this $43,000 worth of Bitcoin that I had in 2016, five years later to the day is worth $12,593,531.70 dollars 70 I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that's over your strict upper limit. So what happens now? Are you going to have a retroactive enforcement where you come and confiscate the wealth? Are you going to come tax my ass off if I try to cash out of the Bitcoin? Um, Well, that's pretty simple, Ben. All I'm going to do is sell just enough Bitcoin that it costs me for a plane ticket out of this hellhole country you created for me. I'm going to go to a country that welcomes me and wants wealthy people that start businesses, and I'll cash out there and transfer my Bitcoin into their currency. Um, rich people think outside the box. It's human nature to want to keep what you worked for, what you earned. Okay, if this guy didn't work for it. You, you got me Bitcoin. He inherited it. But it's rightfully his property. And it's rightfully his incentive to keep it, being that that's what his father or grandfather, whoever gave it to him, clearly wanted them to benefit. Um, that was their own free will. And nobody's being hurt in the process. Nobody's being robbed, taken from. He didn't go and steal someone's Bitcoin. He was given it by it. He was given it from the person who purchased it originally. So... That's the one thing socialists never really want to grapple with is what do you do when the rich people leave? It's, it's such a simple argument, but um, was exit taxes, are you going know, to build walls, are you going to have military guys with guns keeping people from leaving your country? Because that sounds like you're essentially just wanting to make the whole country into a massive prison where all we do is work, talk about slavery, to make the government wealthy as we just do what they want. And they take 95% of our wealth, take an all-incentive away to do anything – um, and not allowing people to do anything. You can't grow up and become a landlord. You can't start a business and have employees. No. You're just going to have to grow up and uh, serve the overlords of the state so everybody can be equal. We will have no more inequality. Sunshine and rainbows every day. Okay, back to the article. <clears throat> so in regards to the uh, strict upper limit on assets, we covered that. Um, ab- above that was this strict upper limit that, to, to be determined and I'm sure it will never change um, would be hundred percent so so that that's actually when I referenced the the Beatles song Tax man earlier that song was written about the UK at the time in the 1960s uh, the one for you 19 for me was literally their tax rate once you crossed hundred grand you got to keep five dollars for every hundred you made so even the Marxist communist uh, you know leader John Lennon himself, thought it was outrageous that once he made crossing to a hundred grand, the state got to keep 95%. Um, so that's, that's kind of ironic that, uh, you know, that's kind of what we're, what we're re-advocating for here. Um, the Kinks had a song too called sunny afternoon in the opening lines about the tax man taking all his dough and he can't sail his yacht cause the tax man's taking it all. Um, so, you know, I, I'd prefer you, uh, you know, reference to go read some some Rothbard or Henry Hazlitt, but um, in the meantime, just go check out some '60s British invasion music because they they've lived this already, and even the even the King Commie John Lennon himself thought it was outrageous. So, in most contexts, a hundred percent tax would be counterproductive. If all or even part of the point of giving t- uh, tax to raise revenue, people need an incentive to produce the income being taxed. I agree. First time. All article. Um, Existing empirical evidence seems to show that the incentive is preserved even at very high marginal tax rates. But somehow, who gets literally someone who gets literally nothing for producing some extra bit of income has no reason to produce it. Okay, so we're just what we're trying to say is that when people, when you're taxing people that are making a lot of money, they still have incentive. Um, yes, but I assume they like to keep more of it. Um, yeah, they're going to keep working in laws they have incentive. Um, doesn't make it moral or right <clears throat> that you're taking it from them. But uh, onward. But the point of a 100% tax rate wouldn't be to generate revenue. Oh, it would be to create a society not distorted by the effects of intergenerational wealth accumulation. What What's distorted? In our country, 80% of millionaires are first generation. So only 20% have inherited their wealth. Think about that. Eighty percent are first generation. That's the beautiful, or the beautiful thing about capitalism. Um, you can work your ass off and create a dream, and if it's valuable to society, you will be rewarded. Um, so Ben's worried about twenty percent of millionaires. Well, I don't have the data, but how many of those are in politics? Ben, the Kennedys, the Bushes, the Clintons, um, Hunter Biden. These guys all count as millionaires that are multi generational. And these are literally the people that are doing what you're accusing the private sector of. Um, they're not providing to society. They're getting their money through uh, you know, malicious ways, and they're not creating goods or services that they're selling voluntarily to people. These are people that literally are just drunk on power and pass the power and wealth and this lifestyle above the rules to their kids. And ironically, these are the very people that you want to give my death tax or my, my estate to when I die through this death tax. Um, like, geez, like we look at the way they spend, we look at the way they behave. And you think if we give them more, they're going to all of a sudden start paying off college debt and, uh, raising wages, but whatever it is, like live in these government owned houses where no one owns property. Like, I, I don't know. Just, I don't know, man. Tell me how, when they have more money and more power, my life will materially get better. Um, or yours or anybody's. Anyhow, I uh, wouldn't be to generate revenue. It would be to create a society not to start by the effects of intergenerational wealth accumulation. We don't want anyone's incentive structure to include the hope of indirectly enhancing their children or grandchildren's income. Well, thank you. Some centrist and right-wing critics would argue that this counterproductive. This is counterproductive in itself. Doesn't a dynamic economy need the hope of intergenerational wealth accumulation as a motive for productivity? Yeah, that that. That's one reason of many. The first thing to say about this is that people who end up having huge estates to pass on to their children are the ones who arrange what's produced and how, but they aren't doing most of the actual hard work. Whether we're talking about menial labor or research and development, like, this is just, it's so full of assertions, like that nobody is doing the hard work that's wealthy. Like, give me a break. How many rich people do you know? I know a lot of business owners. I know ones that are uh never settled down and got married um the ones that have been divorced because they their workload is so heavy that uh they bust their ass for so many hours a day that it they have to sacrifice in other areas of their life that money can't buy um so it's not all sunshine and rainbows, and uh I don't <laughs> to your point, no a lot of them do do the hard work um aside from your hunter Biden types that just you know make millions by – extorting money from our foreign adversaries through his father's name. Um, but yeah, give him more money. Let's give Joe Biden more money and the elite. So, anyways, um, the first thing to say about this is that people who end up in range uh, but they aren't in the most actual work. Um, and even under capitalism, many voluntarily childless people are strongly motivated to excel at their chosen careers and produce wealth. So the point shouldn't be exaggerated. Well, yeah, no one said... Giving, creating welfare for your kids is the only driving factor for success. It's it's one of them. For a lot of people, it's maybe their most important one. But no, everyone's self-interested, which socialists never want to admit. Everybody is self-interested before uh, collectively. Even on a, a family level, I have four kids. I need to eat before I can take care of them. So, yeah, my number one goal subconsciously is to feed myself and make sure I have nutrition and am uh, in good health so I can take care of my kids. Um, so someday they can take care of me. That's kind of how it works. Um, but, yeah, everybody's self-interested. That's, that's nothing new. That's the way it's always going to be. It's the way it's always been. Um, that said, it's certainly true that people with children usually care a great deal about what kind of lives their children will lead. Realistically, empowered workers and socialized businesses would be intensely interested in how their decisions in the present impact the lives lived by their children in, in the future. Okay. I guess that's fair. But this isn't a reason to preserve inherited wealth. It's a reason to abolish it. We want to live in a society where people know that beyond passing on personal possessions, the only way to provide economic comfort and security to their children today is by lavishly funding public goods that will also guarantee the economic comfort and security of everyone else's children tomorrow. Abolishing inherited wealth, in other words, is a good way to safeguard the collective inheritance of every new generation the end. All right. So basically I have to make sure that everyone else's kids are accounted for. So we're not, we're no longer rewarding good behavior. We're not, you know, incentivizing people to be good parents and make responsible financial decisions to set their kids up for success. What we want to do is make sure no matter how you behave, no matter how much of a shitty parent you are, um, that your kid is equally taken care of as my kid. Um, Listen, I love kids. Um, I would love someday to have foster kids. I, I really enjoy helping kids out, especially ones that have been through troubled ways. Um, I don't need the state's help to do that. But, um, yeah, my kids come first. That's the way it's always going to be in my life. Um, I think about my kids. Uh, we talk about this, you know, equality of opportunity and all that. Uh, I think is absolutely ridiculous because I want to give my kids more opportunity than anyone else. That's my job as a father. Um, not by giving them money or, or, you know, anything unmerited, but by teaching them life skills, giving them knowledge, giving them tools and all the resources they need to provide for themselves. I would love them to have an advantage over everyone else. What's wrong with that? You want me to just keep my kids at some kind of subservient level so they're, they're no better than anyone else? Come on, man. Give me a break. And here's the thing. Like, I personally... I'm inclined to agree with, with the emotional level of this argument that I don't want to give my kids unmerited shit. Like, if I did own a multimillion-dollar business when I die – now, granted, my kids are really little, so it's it's hard for me to really say how I'm going to feel about this when they're adults because, you know, it all, it all depends on the kind of person they are. If they are a Billy Madison or Tommy Boy type, then absolutely not. I would never want them involved with anything. I would never want them to, to give them any sort of success they didn't earn. But at the same time, you know, what if I I build a business and what if my kids are an integral part of that, help them get it off the ground? What if they're running the social media? What if they've been there since day one and they know what it took? Um, Yeah, I have every right to hand that to them when I die and they can manage it because they have a great understanding. And I would love to be part of that uh, 10% of third generation that, uh, you know, doesn't fail uh, through a family business. But I've said since by the day my kids were born, I want them to pay for everything themselves. My kids will be buying their first car when they get their license. Um, if they do any sort of education or schooling, that's up to them. They will fund that themselves. I'm not co-signing. They're gonna write up a business plan, how this is gonna pay off, and they're gonna figure it out themselves. Um, you know, I my first job I made six bucks an hour. It took me all summer. I bought a I bought a ninety five Buick Roadmaster for a thousand bucks for my first car. And the you know the the first time I drove that car, it was just an amazing feeling that I owned every single nut and bolt on this. And, and I, I remember driving and thinking about every hour I worked all summer uh, saving and, and, and not blowing my money on shoes and, um, you know, frivolous items because I, I had this goal in mind that I wanted to own my own car. And that was something that I really, really was integral in my development and uh, belief in capitalism that I want my kids to experience that if you want something hard enough or bad enough, you can budget for it, stay focused, keep your eye on the prize, work your ass off and get it. After I had that car... I got into buying and selling uh cars, snowmobiles, car parts, and to the point where I was actually making more money on the side than I was at work when I was a teenager. I was buying and selling muscle car parts and sleds and uh then eventually had enough money to start playing with some sports cars. Once I got to that, um I remember when I was twenty one, twenty two, I was driving a uh two thousand Corvette and I never borrowed a penny in my life. I paid everything in cash. Um, never took out a credit card, never taken out a loan. And I was at an auto show, and I saw a Dodge Viper. And I was like, man, I really want one of those, but I can't afford that. So I went home and started looking them up. And I was like, damn, actually, they're not that far out. They're not that far out of uh, me obtaining one. So I, 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 over the next 14 months, I obsessed over it, and I – bought and sold about 25 cars until the point where I got a Dodge Viper. And it's the one that's on my logo today. And I can never forget that feeling the first time driving that and going, man, I got this because I decided I wanted it. And I busted my ass and aimed my eye at a prize and obtained it. And turns out you can do that with everything in capitalism. If you want something bad enough, you know, you can have anything you want under capitalism as long as it's one thing. Um, And that kind of kept me motivated. I was like, you know what? By the time I turn 30, I'm going to have myself a Ferrari. Um, And I'm 30 now. I don't have a Ferrari. Reason being is because right after I sold the Viper, I met my wife and decided I wanted uh, to have a family and a house more than I wanted a materialistic sports car. So, but having said that, those lessons are something that I want my kids to have. You can't teach it. You have to live it. So, yes, I am inclined to agree that I would never spoil my kids rotten, but- What I do with my business, with my inheritance, with my money, that's completely up to me. If I want to squander it and I want to create a little Billy Madison or a little Tommy Boy piece of shit son, that's entirely my right. I just probably won't. But the state, no one with guns, no one can come in, tell me that I can't do this with my property that I built. Yes. And I know I use government roads and services and infrastructure and all this and that to get to it. Um Okay, we'll keep it. Let's all the more reason to privatize everything because if every time somebody is successful in this country, we hold it over their head and say, "Well, you only got that because, uh, you know, the roads." It's like, uh, okay, well, you monopolize that service now. I now I'm internally in debt to you for it. Well, what about all the people that that failed? Like they paid for those roads too, so they, you're you're liable for them too. Like the, the taxes you charge them for all these roads, you just you you just made it so they can never get ahead. All these taxes hurt them. You can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're responsible for every successful person because of the roads and taxes, you're responsible for every failure because of the roads and taxes. So once again, for sake of argument, privatize all that shit. So, anywho, that's my rant. Um, I'd really appreciate uh, Ben's response. See what he has to say about it. But uh, yeah, and once again, this is a respectful disagreement. I. I really have no uh, personal attacks on on Ben Burgess. This is strictly just a philosophical disagreement. And I I believe the ideas he's spreading are extremely dangerous. And if you look at history, the amount of carnage and millions of bodies dead because of socialism and communism, um, it's really something you should just probably stay away for or stay away from. It's not going to work this time. Never will. People are driven by incentive and self-interest and individualism, whether you want to admit it or not. You can't force people to live the way you want because you disagree with their way of life. Thanks. Peace